Hello everyone, this is Kelly Reed from the SIOP Visibility Committee. I am excited to welcome our 18th guest to the SIOP Conversation Series, Dr. Derek Avery, the CT Bauer Chair of Inclusive Leadership in the Bauer College of Business at the University of Houston. Before we start today's conversation, I will remind you that the majority of today's questions were submitted by you, our listeners. Also a reminder that all episodes of the SIOP Conversation Series are recorded and published as a podcast on iTunes and Google Play and are housed on the SIOP Conversation Series landing page. As our live listeners will notice, today's conversation includes video and listeners will have the opportunity to ask questions throughout the live broadcast using the chat forum on Zoom. Derek has also graciously agreed to remain on the line for 15 minutes following our standard 30-minute broadcast to answer some of the in-the-moment questions you all might have today. Now, I am extremely honored to welcome Dr. Derek Avery to our conversation today. Derek received his PhD in Industrial Organizational Psychology from Rice University. His primary research interests are in workforce diversity, including but not limited to ratio-ethnicity, sex, age, experience, religion, and culture, and employee input mechanisms. He is perhaps best known for his work on diversity climates, which, is a, which has established them as A, instrumental in reducing demographic differences in employee engagement, absenteeism, turnover, and in individual performance, and B, key drivers of unit-level customer satisfaction and sales growth. Derek is an active member of the Academy of Management and a fellow of the Society for Industrial Organizational Psychology, and the Association for Psychological Science. Presently, he is an associate, direct, associate editor of the Journal of Business and Psychology and has served on editorial boards of numerous top tier journals in recent years. His publications total more than 90 articles and chapters um, and research, which has earned commendation from the Academy of Management, has appeared in various outlets, such as the Journal of Applied Psychology, Personnel Psychology, Organization Science, Organizational Behavior and Human Decision Processes, the Journal of Management and the Journal of Organizational Behavior. And as usual in the conversation series, by the end of reading these really distinguished career bios, I am winded. <laughs> Derek, we are so thankful that you could join us today. Thank you so much. Hi, Kelly, thank you for having me. And you make me sound really old when you read a bio and then say, you know, you're out of breath. But... <laughs> well, I left out the year you graduated with your PhD, but people can probably tell um, who are joining us today that in fact, uh, you are fairly early in your career, which makes what I just read off um, even more impressive. So, so Derek, if we could, perhaps you could start off by telling us a little bit about how you got started in IO. Well, my mother is a clinical psychologist by training and she minored in IO when she was in graduate school. And one of her good friends is an IO psychologist. And so uh, I had the, the good fortune of meeting an IO psychologist who demographically resembled me when I was a kid. So I had a, some idea of what it was. Um, and then in undergrad, I had the amazing opportunity to learn at the, the foot of, of three Scion fellows when I was at Tulane. Uh, and so I was really introduced um, to IO psychology by Mike Berg, Jose Cortina, and Ron Landis, um, who, you know, psyopers will recognize those names. And that was really just a, a great indoctrinization into, you know, what the field is all about. All right. Thank you. And how, how did you first become involved in diversity and inclusion? How did you discover that as a research interest? <laughs> Um, so the 
the short story is I was born black in Baton Rouge in the 1970s. Um, the, the long story behind that is that um, a passion and commitment for, to social justice is running my family as, as far back as I can trace it. Um, my grandfather was one of the first heads of the Louisiana chapter of the NAACP. He was in the first uh, class at Southern University Law School, which was the, the first law school in the state of Louisiana to allow and graduate uh, you know, black graduates. Uh, my father is a, both a minister and a lawyer. Um, you know, so when I was growing up, kids used to say, well, boy, you just know all the laws, don't you? Uh, and you know, just from that upbringing, um, social justice has always been on the radar. It's always been something that I've been passionate about. And then I got to graduate school and had the, the good fortune of Rice University hiring uh, Mickey Hebel in my second year. And despite the fact that I was trying not to do diversity research because I didn't want to be pigeonholed as the angry black guy, uh, Mickey said to me, well, look, you know, if, if you're going to be really great at something, you need to be passionate about it. Clearly, this is something that you're passionate about. So why don't you chase your passions and stop worrying about what other people think? Those are wise words for all of us. That's amazing. Um, so Derek, as you just mentioned, your research focuses a lot on the concept of diversity. And um, for, for reasons that are incredibly unfortunate, um, diversity inclusion is an in extremely hot topic right now. How can we best leverage people's current interest in this topic in a way that will sustain change over the long run? Um, so I, I'm a big believer in, in you know, meeting people where they are. So one of the things that, that I look at that scares me a little bit is um, we're all trying to microwave this. And I understand why we would try to microwave it, right? Because when you see something as disturbing as the images that you know, we've routinely seen again and again and again, uh, you wanna stop it, right? I mean, the, the research shows that it's, it's traumatic, you know, turning on the news and watching these images of you know, police brutality, uh, whether it's at a, a protest or you know, whether it you know, is, is in a law enforcement encounter. Um, so I understand why we're in such a hurry, but what we need to, to remain cognizant of is we didn't get here overnight, and so we're not going to create solutions overnight. Um, it's going to require due diligence, and that due diligence is going to be extended, and it's going to require multiple stakeholders to buy in. Um, so, you know, I'm a big believer in you know, taking baby steps. Um, each of us needs to, you know, kind of come up with our own regimen. How are we going to commit to becoming better? Um, at not just you know, checking our own biases, but moving away from this notion of, well, if I'm not actively engaged in some form of ism, then I'm okay, um, to you know, doing what has become you know, very um, trendy right now and saying, okay, you know, I'm gonna move from that point to actually becoming anti-whatever, right? Whether it's racism, whether it's homophobia, whether it's sexism. Um, <clears throat> So I, I think that what we've got to do is just make those individual commitments and also develop, you know, accountability mechanisms so that, you know, we have others in our lives who hold us accountable and make sure that, you know, we're continuing to push the, the envelope and grow and that we're also doing that for other folks, um, you know, whose lives we're in, involved in, whether it's in organizational settings or outside of them. That, um, that's, that's very insightful. I especially appreciate the analogy about the trying to microwave <laughs> this issue. I mean, and I will tell you in, in industry and in the conversations we have with C-suite executives and HR leaders, there is this very 
very palpable tension between wanting to take action and make meaningful change and also recognizing that there are no quick fixes and easy answers. And so really how to, to balance the two. And that's the case with any systemic change, right? And, and this, is, um, this is certainly nothing if not systemic change. Yes. So thank, thank you for your insights on that. Our, our listeners, Derek, are at various points in their career journeys and occupy a variety of positions within their respective organizations. For those listeners who are not in a position to directly impact hiring choices, how can they still make positive contributions to the diversity, equity, and inclusion culture of their organizations? So I think the biggest thing is to recognize that um, hiring is just one piece of the puzzle. Um, and in fact, uh, in a lot of the work that I have done, I have tried to make the case empirically that hiring should not be the first thing that organizations do. Um, a lot of the emphasis gets placed there and people take sort of this field of dreams approach that, you know, if we just get them in the house, then, you know, all of a sudden, you know, the house will become accommodating. Um, and that's, that's ridiculous, right? If, if, you know, you don't make the house uh, more accommodative to begin with, then what you do is you end up filling the house and it becomes, you know, this, this you know, situation where you've got a revolving door, right? People come in, they realize that this organization is not designed to support them and their unique needs. Um, and then they begin looking for another organization to work for. And so, you know, the, the, work, the hard work is not just getting people in the seats. The hard work is creating an inclusive organizational environment where people of all backgrounds will be supported. And I think that that's a place where all of us can play a part. Um, you know, the way in which we treat people is incredibly important. Um, the way in which, you know, and it's, it can be, you know, little things. Like I can remember, you know, as a child, my parents impressing upon me the importance of treating everybody with dignity and respect, right? And one of the things that, that I have done um, in hiring searches when I'm on search committees is I will oftentimes ask the, the janitors and, you know, the administrative assistants, because I know them, or, you know, in the different places where I've worked, you know, how did this candidate treat you? Right. You know, what were your interactions like with this candidate? Did you meet them? Were they nice? Did they, right? Because, you know, that, that means a lot, right? When you treat everyone with some degree of dignity, you begin to create an environment that is inclusive. Um, and that inclusivity, you know, we're learning more and more is the key for us really being able to, to leverage the impact of, of our differences in a positive way, as opposed to seeing our differences continue to divide us in, in organizations. You use the house analogy, and this is probably not um, totally PC, but it reminded me a little bit of family dynamics and how it's almost like the notion of as family dynamics, well, we to make a better family dynamic, let's just keep having more kids <laughs> if there's problems. And that's, that's not the answer. <laughs> that is not the answer. You have to work on the dynamics. Um, so again, probably not at all what you're going for and not PC in the least, but uh, the, the house now, I, I love your, your metaphors that you're sharing today. I think that the um, richness of them really resonates with the, um, you know, the complexity of these issues. Well, it's, it's funny that you mentioned the house because I actually thought you were going somewhere different with that. Um, a, a lot of folks will be able to relate to this. I remember growing up, um, you know, my mother was, was a bit of a neat freak. And so, you know, you could not have company over until the house was right, right? It had to be clean. And I mean, when I say clean, like she would sometimes pull out the white glove, like that house had to be spotless. 
Uh, and I think that that's sort of the, the, you know, another way in which we can think about this is that our organizations need to, we've got to do our house cleaning first, right? Mm-hmm. Don't invite company over if, you know, your house isn't ready for company yet. I like that. That's great. Um, building on that topic, and I think, I think it goes back a little bit to that, um, that tension that I alluded to between, um, and you talked about with the microwave analogy, between taking action now and helping to create, um, helping to do something in what is perceived as a window of opportunity for change with the understanding that there are no quick fixes, there are no easy answers. Um, Many organizations seem to have this pressure to take giant leaps and to do it so quickly with diversity inclusion. How how should organizations balance taking immediate action with some of those well-crafted strategies that are grounded in scientific evidence sort of the, the balance between the, the short-term and the long-term focus? That's, that's a great question. Um, one of the things that, that I became very aware of, uh, having spent a couple of years in university admi- administration, is when you're just a faculty member or just a student, you have this view as the, uh, the administration being evenly focused on the long and the short-term. And the reality is, that's just not the way that this works. Uh, so much more time is spent putting out fires, right? And having this very short-term focus um, in large part because people see their survival um, as being contingent upon the short-term, right? If I don't do to what I need to do to take care of third quarter earnings, I'm not gonna be here for the next first quarter, right? Um, so I think that a large part of what we need to do is recognize that Um, diversity success is not going to come overnight. Um, It's going to require a string of little victories, right? And so what what I oftentimes will encourage folks and organizations to do is figure out where's the low-hanging fruit, right? We're not going to microwave this. We're not going to boil the ocean overnight. But there are some things that we can identify that are opportunities for us to have immediate impact. And if we can start to string together some of those little victories, then over time, what begins to happen is, is when we back up, when we pan back, we're able to see the progress that we've made um, on a much grander scheme just by being immediately focused on these little things, right? So the strategy is in identifying the little things that when you are able to string those things together will amount to the longer term vision for the change that you want to see as an organization. So Derek, building on that, um, on that notion of the string of, of little victories and thinking about that first small step on the big journey, are there any examples you can give? And I know it probably differs quite a bit from company to company and you know, where they're at on their journey and what their goals are, but are there any examples you can give of you know, common first steps or small steps that organizations can take? Yeah, so I, I think that a lot of organizations have rushed out to say something. And I understand why you would want to say something, uh, because saying nothing just looks horrible, right? So from an impression management standpoint, we don't want to sit and be quiet. Um, but as soon as you say something, then the, the immediate thing that people's attention is going to be drawn to is what are you doing, right? Is there this connection between what you say and what you do, or this notion of behavioral integrity, right? Is your behavior reflecting what it is that you say that you value? 
And I, I think that that's where it's really important to make sure that whatever it is that we say, we have identified some key actions that we can take in the immediate foreseeable future that show that this isn't just lip service, right? We are actually doing something that is consistent with the vision that we're putting out there um, for us moving forward, right? So if, if an organization is saying, hey, for instance, you know, Black Lives Matter, right? I, I got an email, you know, from Old Navy saying Black Lives Matter. And I was like, okay, I've never seen anything about Black Lives in Old Navy. I didn't know that that was an issue in Old Navy. Like, what, what does that mean, right? So what I want to know is, well, what is Old Navy going to do differently now um, as a result of having adopted this platform that indeed this is a, you know, key critical issue? Right. And so one of the things that they did in following that up is they started to identify here the action strategy. Right. Here's where we are going to elicit greater involvement, um, you know, from folks, whether it's, you know, for marketing or for product design to ensure that, you know, we are catering to this group that we may not have catered to, you know, as well as we should have in the past. You know, we're going to enlist, you know, external consultants to help us identify blind spots that we may have had with respect to, you know, institutional racism and how it's embedded within this organization, right? And so again, I think, you know, just by identifying those crystallized strategies, here's what we're going to do that is consistent with this position that we have adopted publicly. I think that's really, really important. One of the, and, and um, I'm springing this on you a little bit, but it, I'm thinking of this as you, in uh, light of everything you've just shared, one of the things that I wonder about is, you know, with these strings of little victories and the progress and the statements and the immediate actions, you know, is there, is there any merit to, is there any merit to avoiding giving people the satisfaction or gratification of feeling like it was a quick victory if for no other reason than to keep that cognitive dissonance that may have propelled that desire for change, at least at some level, there to continue the momentum over time that and I and I say that I say and, and, and that sounds like a loaded question maybe it is I I just I wonder a little bit about the journey that it takes and the commitment that it takes to really make progress on meaningful on, on meaningful um, progress on these issues and I can't help but wonder if there's not something that's actually maybe a little bit good about having that seat of I feel uncomfortable I feel like we haven't finished it yet. I feel like we still have so much work to do as from an employer point of view, but is that just, is that just me? Or it, I mean, Derek, what are your, what are your thoughts on, on that balance, right? Of victories versus still feeling a little uncomfortable with not being where we, we should be. Well, I, I, I agree with you that it is incredibly important for the organization to keep the little victories in context, right? And to not celebrate the little victory as though we've won the war, right? You know, these are battles you win enough battles and you eventually win the war. Um, winning one or two battles does not win a war, right? I think that, you know, one of, one of the best analogies, you know, for sustained change is, you know, like weight loss, right? If we think about, you know, okay, we've got to think about all the things that got us to this point, right? And then we've got to start to, you know, chip away at that, right? Because tomorrow we're not going to look like we did 10 years ago. Like, it just doesn't work that way. Right? So we have to make these routine, smaller investments with the realization that this change is going to, it's going to have to be sustained. 
right? We can't just make one quick change, fix everything, and then say, okay, now we're done. Um, it's going to be these, you know, little things. Um, and eventually one day you look up and you realize without even having focused on the fact that, you know, now we've become a much more inclusive organization. We've become a much more diverse organization uh, without even necessarily focusing on the big picture, right? Because what we've done is we have taken this very myopic approach to the little victories, right? We just keep focusing on, you know, it, it, it's like that, that focus just, you know, allows you to keep expanding, right? Because as you, you know, are really successful in this area, then you can start to, you know, expand that. And you can say, okay, you know, we won doing that thing. Now let's try and address a somewhat larger issue and a somewhat larger issue, right? And eventually you get to the point where you're tackling some really, really heavy stuff um, that a lot of organizations who haven't put in the groundwork and developed that foundation are not even able to, you know, to address. I like that. I like that notion of the keeping it, you know, highlighting the victories, but keeping it in context and continuing to reinforce how, how far we're coming along, but still how much is, is left to, to be done. So thank you for that. Our next question, as most of our questions do uh, on the conversation series, comes from a listener who is wondering, with the growing divides in our country around political, social, and health issues, how can organizations balance psychological safety, belonging, and inclusivity with the ideals and values that they stand by. And the listener went on to offer an example. So specifically, some organizations have experienced anonymous employee backlash after expressing ideals and values that some may consider to be controversial. For example, expressing support for the Black Lives Matter movement or enforcing a mask mandate. How can organizations counter such comments without compromising psychological safety or, or do they need to? So again, really easy questions for you today, Derek. You came to a softball <laughs> session here on the conversation series. You're like, I'm never coming back. I'm telling everyone, don't ever do this. <laughs> no, this, this, is, this is the hard work of, of doing this work. Um, because unfortunately, the reality is everything's become political, right? So PSYOP made a, you know, our, our president made the, the first really social statement, perhaps in our history, um, in the, the aftermath of you know, George Floyd and you know, many of the protests. And the, the response has been overwhelmingly positive, but it hasn't been universally so, right? So, you know, you, you get, you know, responses that, you know, say, well, you know, I didn't know that PSYOP was into making political statements when what our president came out and said is PSYOP stands against racism. To me, that's not a political statement, right? But we've adapted or adopted, you know, this view that everything can be viewed and everything should be viewed, you know, through political lenses. Uh, and so I think that part of what has to happen is organizations have to reclaim these narratives um, and set the, the, the stage by saying that, listen, there are certain organizational values um, that are core to this organization. Right. And to the extent that, you know, those things may conflict with political stances, uh, then the political stances are going to have to come second. Right. You know, so we can't say that we're just going to continue to discriminate because, you know, saying that we stand against discrimination may be, you know, aversive to someone. Right. And so I think that what that requires is that requires some degree of moral anchoring on the part of organizations. Right. And so executives have to really sit down and decide, you know, what are our core values? Um, what are the things that we are not willing to compromise on? 
then making that clear to the individuals within the organization so that you can begin that, um, you know, that process of ASA, right? You know, as you clarify, you know, what those value, those core values are, then people have the right to make their own decisions and opt out, you know, if, if that's not something that they can fall in line with, or that's not something that they believe at their core. Um, and everybody's not going to stay with you, and that's okay too, right? If people who don't believe that Black Lives Matter or people who don't believe that, um, you know, we shouldn't be sexually harassing women at the rate that we're sexually harassing women, if they don't buy into that, then it's, there's, there's, you know, other places for those folks, right? Everybody in your organization is not going to fall into line. Um, I think that we recognize that about a lot of other types of deficiencies. Um, but for whatever reason, we're, we're very hesitant to recognize that about, you know, deficiencies with respect to diversity competency. Yeah, it's a, that's, um, that's a great perspective and very interesting. And when you, you talk about ASA, I think about that um, not only from an employee perspective, but I think a lot of the discourse from an employer perspective is, is around customers. So that's the other piece. And it came up in 2014, whenever the, there was a big, um, you know, surge around Black Lives Matter, but I think more companies were reluctant then to say or do anything, maybe less in part because of the employees, but maybe more so because what is that going to create around political views with, with our customers? And so now here we are again in 2020, and it seems like more organizations have been more vocal and have been more willing to put a stake in the ground about it, but yet again, the actions behind it, it'll be interesting to see what actions, meaningful actions are, are taken beyond the statements. I, I'm curious, so again, another question from our listener, uh, one of our listeners here, Derek, as the public conversation has moved from diversity to inclusion, um, now more focused to anti-racism, what do you think organizations should be most focused on in their diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts? What are some of the best ways for organizations to encourage or help their employees to become anti-racist? <clears throat> Okay, those, uh, that was sort of a, a double-barreled question. It was like uh, a multi-barreled question. <laughs> our, our listeners have really complex, great, meaty questions. <laughs> uh, so the first thing is, I, I think that as hard as it is to do everything, you know, organizations have to remain ever mindful of the fact that um, as meaningful as race might seem in this particular moment, we can't take our eye off the ball on any of the other um, you know, types of difference that might be particularly meaningful in that organization. One of the things that, that I, I always advocate is that organizations have to be very diligent about doing their own diagnostic work. Um, I, I had a practitioner reach out to me about, you know, wanted me to get involved with something that they were trying to do from a diversity initiative standpoint within their organization. Um, and they were essentially asking me, you know, what I would recommend without having allowed me to diagnose the patient. And being married to a physician, one of the things that I'm ever cognizant of is that, you know, doing any type of prescription without having done diagnosis is just not a good idea. Um, so, you know, executives need to, to really be vigilant about making sure that they're constantly assessing and reassessing and questioning their own assumptions about what are the differences that really make a difference within this organization because they're not always the same. Um, some organizations do better with race than other organizations. Some organizations race is not you know a, a particularly heavy issue but you know when you start talking about social class or you start talking about sexual orientation 
or you start talking about, you know, immigration or religion, now all of a sudden you, you know, hit the mind. So I think that every organization has to do its own homework in terms of figuring out, you know, where our, our you know, fault lines are, where our, um, you know, key areas of sensitivity are, where our key opportunities for development lie. Um, and then, you know, remain cognizant of the fact that that is a very much a dynamic process, right? Those things can change and sometimes they can change really quickly. Um, and sometimes when we are focused on one little thing, um, we oftentimes will be reminded that we've taken our eye off of something else, mm -hmm. right? So in the midst of our organization really having in this, having, excuse me, our um, society having this reckoning about realizing just how impervious we had been to paying attention to uh, women being victimized in the workplace, right? Now, all of a sudden, we have this epiphany about race. Uh, and it's like, oh my gosh, you know, there's all this systemic racism that we haven't been paying attention to. And I, I've got to think, you know, we, we can't take our eye off the other thing either, right? Because if we start paying all of our attention to race, then we know what's going to happen with respect to this other thing. Um, so, We've got to forever be. We've got to be forever mindful of the fact that all of these things work together, and you know, remember what what King, you know, Dr. King said about you know injustice anywhere being a threat to you know. We've got to you know, constantly pay attention to how we're managing each of these types of, of difference, um, so that we're not allowing ourselves to remain you know willingly or unwillingly, or excuse me, wittingly or unwittingly uh, blind to you know where we may have injustice. Eric, thank you. And I know we're we're at time for our recorded broadcast, but I'd love to just maybe ask if you could share very, um, just at a high level, and then we can expand on this more with um, the folks who are our live listeners. You recently became PSYOP's new diversity and inclusion officer. Could you share more about your goals and priorities for this year? So for this year, a large part of my priorities are doing some intense self-study. Um, I think that it's very easy for me to come in having been seen the chair you know, previously, you know, having been involved in PSYOP for 20 years and come in with some assumptions about you know, where we stand as a society with respect to you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, we're IO psychologists though, so it doesn't really matter what I assume. It's about you know, what the, the data show. Um, and quite frankly, our record keeping has just not been up to par with what we would you know, teach our students. So we need to do better with respect to understanding who our members are, what differences um, you know, we're seeing, how representative we are of psychology as a whole, and how representative we are as society as a whole. Uh, we also need to do a little bit more work in terms of you know, understanding you know, how inclusive are we as a society. Uh, you know, one of the things that, that I have been asked about is, you know, um, how clean is our house, you know, as we're out here, you know, making statements to organizations about, you know, what they should be doing, right, you know, with respect to diversity, equity, and inclusion. Uh, and so this year, I'm really trying to do some, some diagnosing of the house and to start doing some strategic house cleaning uh, so that we are speaking from a position of, of enlightenment uh, with respect to diversity and equity and, and inclusion, as opposed to, you know, people being able to look at our society uh, take a couple of snapshots and say, well, why should we listen to you, you know, when it comes to, you know, talking about diversity and inclusion. Fantastic. Well, Derek, on behalf of PSYOP, the Visibility Committee, and all of our listeners, thank you so much for engaging in an enlightening conversation and for taking the time to speak with us today. 
as always, we had many, many more questions from our listeners <laughs> for you than we have time to cover. Um, but we, we so appreciate you being with us. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. And I also want to thank all of our listeners for joining today's conversation series and thank our conversation series producer and SIOP Visibility Committee volunteer Kelsey Rickles for running this series. Please join us for our next conversation on Wednesday, September 30th with SIOP fellow Dr. Rose Miller Hansen, the Associate Director and CFO of Community Interface Services, a nonprofit organization serving adults with developmental disabilities. Our future guest lineup also includes. Drs. Eden King, Stephen Rogelberg, Richard Landers, and more with more details to come. Until next time, take care. For live listeners remaining on the line, we have up to 15 more minutes with Derek to get to some of our audience submitted questions during our live discussion today. Feel free to bring up the chat function if you have access to that, and you can enter any question you have for Derek. I think, Derek, you can also see the questions coming through too, correct? I'll, I'm happy to read them to you. Um, but if there's uh, any, yep. okay. So we have, um, so we have a question here about someone being surprised how many leaders are hesitant to address Black Lives Matter and systemic racism. Um, the idea is that if I'm not an expert, I can't talk about it. Any best practices or ideas to move leaders away from passive and into active? Absolutely. Um, <clears throat> I, I 